мамой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, everyone. This is the SRB Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Guillory. As you know, the podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And every semester, we do a center newsletter where we spotlight a few of our faculty. But instead of doing a short paragraph about them or a short interview, I decided to create an audio profile of our featured faculty. That way, you can hear them in their own words, talking about their work, teaching, and interests. This faculty spotlight is on Olga Klimova, who is one of our Russian language instructors and film studies scholars in the Pitt Slavic department. Here's Olga talking a bit about her background, interest in Soviet youth film, and the current political turmoil and mass protests in her native Belarus. You'll also hear a few clips in Russian from two popular Soviet youth films, The first is a scene from the 1981 film Can One Imagine, directed by Ilya Frenz, and the second is from the 1975 film 100 Days After Childhood, directed by Sergei Solovyov. So here's Olga. Enjoy! Their disappointment with the regime and with the president is very visible talking about uh, allegories and uh, SOP in language right when the government the state becomes very repressive people would come up with some kind of strategies how to still express themselves you say go away uh, cockroach right probably 80% of Belarusians will immediately understand what you're referring to My name is Olga Klimova, and I teach in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Pittsburgh, where I'm also the director of the Russian program. I'm originally from Belarus, although I was born in Uzbekistan, in Tashkent, and I moved to Belarus when I was six years old. So I guess I am a mixture of Uzbek cultural and Belarus cultural and American cultural like person. <laughs> When I was doing my uh, uh, research for my dissertation, I became very interested uh, in youth in the genre of youth cinema. But uh, my focus was specifically uh, on youth cinema that would be resisting or questioning the the mainstream culture and the state order. And because I was uh, um, I was a researcher, I was studying the late Soviet films, youth films uh, during the Brezhnev period. So I ended up, ended up um, finding a lot of interesting examples of the films that would use uh, different cinematic strategies and narrative strategies uh, in order to show some kind of dissatisfaction with the regime or like, questioning the uh, the functioning of the of the system. The most common strategy would be the narrative strategy, what they choose to discuss. And, uh, for example, in the films by Asanova or Averbach, they choose to show the young Soviet citizens, let's say, in the environment or in these conditions and the situations where they would, you would have never seen them prior to, that, to this. So, for example, we have 
like 16 year old uh, high school students getting pregnant, facing abortion, choosing to be single uh, mothers. We have uh, like uh, young 14, maybe 15, 16 year old high school students expressing their sexual desires or some kind of uh, affection toward their teacher, which has a little bit of sexual um, um, characteristics. So things that you would have never imagined could have happened in the Soviet cinema prior to the the late 1970s, early 1980s. So the Brezhnev cinema is known for the, it's basically a cinema of, uh, a cinema of illusions. Uh, a lot of allegories and metaphors and uh, hints and references to the historical events or to the leadership, to ineffective leadership. So, for example, the young characters would have more power they would be uh, they would be the owners of the gays, right? So it's not not uh, longer the big brother, right? They they return the gays. They're looking at the world uh, around them. They're looking at the adults. They're looking at the educators who represent the authoritative voice, right? And they kind of return in the voice. They're no longer subjugated. They're no longer powerless. They would ne- they wouldn't probably allow to. Topics like these or the, these attempts of questioning or criticizing the system or some parts of the system in, let's say, adult films with like regular uh, adult characters, but with the children or uh, teenagers because they're supposed to be on the way to maturation, right? This is all, like most of these are, yeah, they're like Bildungsromans, they're the novels of maturation. They're supposed to develop. They're not the complete subjects. They're not complete uh, citizens. So they, uh, they, uh, they're allowed to make mistakes. They're allowed not to be ideal because they are still in the process of becoming these ideal citizens. So there is, some things can be forgiven. And I've collected all the views responses because this is a special genre and that became popular like since the like 50s, 60s, when viewers would be publishing uh, numerous responses in newspapers uh, and uh, uh, magazines. And it's interesting that many people in these responses, of course, uh, there were some negative reaction to these films, and it's like people, especially of the older generation, they would say, Wow, like I do not agree with this uh, filmmaker. What is he showing? We don't have young people having sexual life. Right? <laughs> They're just kids and stuff like this. But then uh, it was overwhelming response from young people who were 
writing letters to the editor and these responses were published, that was, I was really surprised and shocked that this actually ended up being uh, entering the public discourse. And they were talking about how honest these filmmakers were, how they uh, identified themselves with these um, characters, with these cinematic characters, how a lot of issues that they address, for example, drinking or uh, smoking, right? Young people are not supposed to smoke and drink, but they do. And then finally, it goes it goes on screen, and then young people say, "Yes, we we experience this uh, in our own life." Что же ты плетешь, лопухин? Как же тебе не стыдно? А чего мне стыдиться? Не скажешь? Меня жалеть не надо. Заруби это за гримохина у себя на носу. Не смей орать на меня, лопухин. Это еще почему? Потому что ты дурак, Лопухин. Потому что я люблю тебя больше всех на свете. I actually refuse to call it the stagnation, and I usually refer to it just like the Prezhnev period. Because I think this uh, this label was uh, placed on this um, on this period unfairly. And what I noticed, because on the one hand the government was uh, suffocating the, the culture, cultural producers and also regular uh, Soviet audience no longer wanted this. They wanted to express their opinions. They wanted to be more involved in this cultural production. So they just found different ways of uh, creating something that was more, I guess, sophisticated. They had to become tricksters in a way. I feel like the Brezhnev period was so vibrant, was so diverse, so multi-layered because of all these restrictions that Uh, uh, filmmakers and artists and writers had to overcome by inventing, <laughs> inventing a different language, inventing different cinematic strategies, you know. It's interesting that I think that it would be more difficult to draw differences between Belarusian culture and Russian culture than, let's say, between Ukrainian culture and Russian culture. Because of this, it is difficult to to talk about Russian culture being something entirely different from Belarusian culture because it's already ingrained in um, in, Belar- in Belarusian society. But um, at the same time, uh, I think that... Uh, I can say for at least some of uh, Belarusians is like we are very sensitive if people are trying to say, oh, you're just Russians. Uh, we have a very strong, um, I guess, uh, cultural identity. I don't know, national identity, but like cultural identity. And it is connected to to the existence of our own language. So the, the language definitely distinguishes uh, Belarusians from Russians uh, and some uh, national traditions and specific songs and uh, even the uh, Belarusian cuisine is different. So if you look at different small things, there there are a lot of, uh, there, at least uh, there are enough cultural elements that separate these two cultures. I would say over the past two, 20 years, the, the number of people who speak Belarusian Uh, has increased drastically. I have a lot of friends who in the, like, let's say, between 20 and 40, they choose to speak Belarusian. So I, I guess that the identity, the cultural identity of Belarusians, I think, becoming more like, uh, resh- gets reshaped and becomes, like, strengthened. 
I am excited. I am extremely happy in a way what's going on in Belarus, although these are a very, uh, this is a very sad uh, moment to many Belarusians. But I think what mo- many of us, many people from Belarus are excited about is that finally the society is waking up. And uh, our current president, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, has been in power for for a long, long time, since uh, 1994. He uh, managed to amend the constitution several times in order to extend his uh, his term as a president. Belarus was one, I think, the only country probably in Eastern Europe, or in Europe uh, that decided not to take any measures in order to uh, to protect people from uh, from coronavirus, from COVID. So there were many, many uh, comments uh, that he made during this period that basically showed disrespect to, to the citizens of Belarus. This is the first time when I guess many people decided that uh, what he was doing wasn't uh, safe for them. He wasn't uh, representing their interests anymore. The position was, I think, that maybe partially because of the coronavirus. This is my just guess. I, I don't know whether it would have happened if there was no pandemic. I'm, I'm hoping that it's maybe it could have happened, but I think it definitely helped. Uh, we had very strong uh, oppositional candidates this time. Svetlana Tikhonovskaya took over the reins of a popular protest movement after her blogging husband was jailed for taking part in an illegal demonstration. She told Euronews the government crackdown fired up her campaign. You know, our people's eyes just opened and they saw this violence from the side of our power, you know, and just it was very small steps to people to realize that everything should be changed. This specific situation and this specific behavior of one person changed the opinion of many people and kind of woke them up up as uh, political uh, subjects. Belarusians are in shock because of the brutality of the Belarusian police. I think what people got upset the most, it's the disrespect with which the the regime was uh, treating them. Because knowing that most of the people voted for Tikhanovska, for the positional candidate, and then given this number 80, it was like like, like they spit into the people's face. And I think that was kind of the last drop. This was the last job because most people just said, okay, I voted. I I went there. I spent, I don't know, five hours in this line to have my vote count. And then at the end, where is my vote? There is no way it's uh, his vote should have been at least uh, like uh, under 50. But at this point, I think the, the main goal was just to get rid of the old regime. So, and I know that maybe at this point people are focusing more on now rather than then, right? What I really, I'm, I'm very proud of my nation, of my people, because the, the idea is still to keep it peaceful as, as, as much as we can. People are doing everything in their power. And I guess the, uh, 
the lesson from the World War II, from the Great Patriotic War, that Belarusians people can endure everything, anything. So, and Belarusians uh, as, as a nation, as people, are very strong. But that's not enough. I feel like that's not enough. We need the attention of the like, uh, world leaders. Thank you.